0: Before we uh, continue in our worship through the preaching of God's word, I invite you first to join me in our prayer of confession. Let's pray together. Gracious Father, again, we thank you for the privilege together. We thank you uh, for this glorious day that you have set aside uniquely for the body of Christ to, together to worship you, to commune with you in a unique way. We thank you for all our brothers and sisters. Across this globe, that have already or are, are in some way currently uh, closing out their time of gathering together, this Lord's Day that you've given them. And we come to you with hearts that long to know you more fully, hearts that long for intimacy with you, our God. We know that our sin that so besets us um, is a barrier to our intimacy with you. We know that uh, we must um, continue to strive for righteousness and your strength and your enabling grace that so uh, equips your saints moment by moment to worship you well. And part of that is acknowledgement of our sin, our our proneness to wander, our struggle with sin. Although we hate it, we still uh, struggle with it. We still fall prey to sin we still have to fight that fight and we ask that you would give us strength to fight well but uh, as you teach us it is well for us to confess we know we do so most poignantly because sin creates a barrier between you and intimacy with your people and we long for that intimacy so hear our hearts cry hear our confession Mend us bind us strengthen us Grant us capacity to walk uh, in more fullness of light and gain on you that we might know you all the more intimately. That our hearts might be filled with your wonder and majesty. That we might go out and be light into this world and worship you well. We ask in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, this morning we return to Acts chapter 21 and we'll be looking at verses... 9 through 16. Uh, today's message, again, we're returning to kind of uh, that character of Paul in today's message. is entitled, Paul, the Relentless Apostle, Part 2. So if you'll recall, we find Paul really on his journey, traveling back to Jerusalem and just some of the stops along the way and uh, sometimes meeting with Uh, The brothers in Christ along the way and just an overall historical narrative, a little part of that picture as Paul is on his way back, his mission to carry uh, relief, monetary relief from the Gentile churches back to the Jewish church, which is uh, suffered under famine and more poignantly under persecution. So that's the context. And we've been tracking with Paul and just his dogged determination to see this through to the glory of God, knowing that persecution surely awaits him. And so we're continuing along that vein and thinking uh, uh, with Paul as he journeys in a historical narrative. Uh, And we see that kind of played out for us here in Acts. So I want to draw your attention now. Just look at at these verses together. And we have a little peculiar uh, beginning there in verse 9. It's just kind of uh, squeezed in here. Between uh, the first section there, 1 to 7, or 1 to 8, and then transitioning into our section, really, uh, 9 or, or 10 to 16. So I just want to start at 9, and we'll address this a little bit. A kind of uh, a little interesting notation here in the whole narrative. The so beginning of verse 9, look with me. God's Word says, now this man, and that now they're referring back to Philip, okay? Remember Paul, was, Paul and his... Uh, um, Cohorts are staying with philip and we know the dynamic there uh, so it's a beautiful thing that these two have been brought back together after all this time paul first when they first uh knew of one another paul was a persecutor of the church and philip was fleeing uh the persecution and now all these years later uh the two are brought back together and um we see paul stand philip's house but verse 9 says to us that this man philip had four for do- four virgin daughters who were prophetesses. As we were staying there for some days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, this is what the Holy Spirit says. In this way, the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we had heard this, we as well, as a local residence, began begging him not to go up to Jerusalem, begging him, that being Paul. Then Paul answered, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be bound, but even to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we fell silent, remarking, the will of the Lord be done. After these days, we got ready and started to go on our way up to Jerusalem. Some of the disciples from Caesarea also came with us, uh, taking us to Mason uh, of Cyprus, a disciple of long standing with whom we were to lodge. Well, that just again gives us a little running narrative of Paul continuing on his journey. Now, a little interesting language about Philip's daughters, who are prophetesses, and uh, we'll speak to that uh, in a moment. But really, the context just sends us continuing on the journey. We're just continuing to track with Paul. He meets with uh, the disciples here in Caesarea, and we have Agabus now into the picture again. Do you remember Agabus back from verse 11? Agabus is that uh, prophet, a New Testament prophet, who prophesied about the famine under Claudius Caesar. So uh, he shows up again. And here we see a very dynamic, vivid picture of what Agabus will now prophesy concerning Paul specifically as he returns to Jerusalem. And so we're just, we're following the historical narrative. And we continue to see Paul, what? Live by example, right? Isn't that what we're looking at here in the life of Paul when we think about the relentless Reality of Paul's apostleship. We see a living example. We see Paul again practicing what he preaches. He's giving us an example of the gospel by the way he's living it out. He's giving us the gospel in word and deed. And that's the beauty of the historical narrative. That's really the core beauty of Acts, is it not? That we, we see the theology And we see it in space and time, in God's linear creation of space and time. Now we see, yes, a a Christian with a unique calling, but a Christian living that out day to day, moment by moment, as he tracks along in obedience to his Lord. And that's the beauty for us. This is happening as a historical narrative. We get to see Paul live out what he declares to be true. We get to see him cling to the gospel of Jesus Christ, cling to the glory and power and majesty of his Lord as he lives out the gospel moment by moment. So Paul's conviction is lived out before us and it's good for our souls. Even as we just track him on his journey, we know where he's going and we know why he's going there. And now we see In the narrative that he will not be deterred, we see a man living out his faith and full obedience, abandoned to Christ. And that's the great example. So Paul is practicing what he preaches, if you will, uh, given that, that language. He's committed and he's fueled by the saving grace of Jesus Christ. That's what moves him forward. It's the gospel. It's what God has done in his life to transform him from persecutor of the church now to apostle. And he's walking the walk, if you will. It reminds us of that picture given in Hebrews 11, which uh, Paul might have theologically certainly been behind, or or certainly theologically was behind that book, uh, probably penned by another brother. But certainly the theology belongs to Paul. And if you remember there in Hebrews chapter 11, it gives kind of a little list, a little rundown of heroes of the faith. And I think back in verse 24, to Moses uh, particularly, and Moses, when we think about it in our context, which, compared to the rest of the world, we live a pretty cushy life, right? We live in comfort and ease as Christians here. So it's a little unique dynamic for us compared to maybe some other Christians around the world. But I think about Moses when I think about us in our context. And Moses there gave up the ease and comfort and safety of Pharaoh's house, right? to identify with his people and to suffer the ill treatment of his people. Why? Why did he do that? He did that so he would be marked off as one who would suffer ill treatment for the name of his God rather than passing pleasures of this world. And that's exactly what we see Paul living out. One who's willing to be ill-treated Rather than hide in safety and cling to the passing pleasures of this world. So Paul and Moses here are really good examples of being willing to, willing to pay the price to honor God with His truth. Romans 8:18. 8, here again, language from Paul. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed in us. Now, we've been tracking Paul in his journey. We know that he wrote Romans where? You remember? Where was he? He was in Corinth, right? Wasn't he? Yes, he was. Good job. He wrote it in Corinth. And he's writing there. Under the direction of the Holy Spirit, what we know now to be uh, uh, the, the word of God, scripture from the Holy Spirit, inspiring Paul and moving him along to pin the, the, the scriptural truth. And there in Corinth, in space and time, he's declaring theologically what he's now living out. The power of God. He's walking that walk now that he had penned earlier. And so there's the language. Now we find the language in Romans. And now we see really in space and time, he's beginning to walk that out in the fullest measure. He's headed for persecution and he's aware of it. He knows what lies ahead. And he continues on anyway. And I say to you, like Paul, our hope rests solely in the life, death, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. There is no other hope. There is no other call in our life that has eternal power and glory to the one true God. It is Christ and Christ alone. And so we are called to total abandonment to the cause of Christ. That is our calling. That, that is what must be our conviction. And when we have this conviction, the conviction produces the courage. When conviction lies in the gospel truth that our hope rests solely in the person and work of Jesus Christ and that we are called by our God to be abandoned to the cause of Christ, then that conviction will produce the courage. That conviction comes from the grace and majesty of God poured out in our life to grant us capacity to walk worthy of our calling, even if it means suffering Ill treatment in this world for obedience to Christ. So here's a theological note. Hold on to this when we think about the context. God honors the faithful. Amen. Amen. God honors the faithful. Always, every day, all the time, twice on Sunday. God honors the faithful. It's better to be under pressure in this world, without the comforts of this world, and be in the will of God. And to be living in ease and comfort and be outside the will of God. And we just have to lay hold of that, take that reality, and lay it before the feet of our Savior day after day, and ask for enabling grace to walk worthy. So that brings us to uh, our first point there. And I've stated here to be impervious, verses 9 through 14. Be impervious. And by impervious, I simply mean this. Be impervious to all deterrence of you walking in obedience to your Lord's calling upon your life. We've talked much about our ministry. We all are ministers of the gospel. Whatever uh, role we might be in as brothers and sisters in Christ, we all have a personal ministry. We all uh, practice ministry. We're ministers of the gospel. And whatever God has called you to do, whatever ministry God has given you, and however it is to play out, we are called to be impervious to all deterrence in this life that would draw us away from our obedience to God's call upon us and our ministry that he has given to us. So that's that's where I'm coming from in terms of be impervious like Paul. Be impervious to all deterrence of your ministry calling, and so let's look there and just tackle because we, uh, we, we we got we we got to look at the four virgins here that are, are that uh, prophesy right. So let's just tackle that up front because it's kind of stuffed in here, and it really speaks to to Philip, um, who we just I, I needed to address Philip in the last few verses on on, on last time, uh, so that it kind of left this hanging. It really speaks. To Philip and the kind of man that we see him to be, although much of his ministry now was in obscurity where prior he was much in the high and in the limelight. And we we could have looked then and said, hey, this is going to be the apostle to the Gentiles certainly looked that way. But God and his sovereignty brought Philip into a ministry of somewhat obscurity. And Paul was thrust forward in that high profile role. But look at what Philip did here. We find him as the evangelist, right? And look at his house. Dads. So here he has, now this is not all his children, I I doubt very seriously. The text is not leaning that way. Uh, That's that's, um, not there for us, probably. Not all his children. But he has three unmarried, or excuse me, four unmarried daughters. Who now, are they prophesy now as New Testament prophets in the church here, the New Testament church. So here's a picture. They are a picture, a small little snapshot of Philip's faithfulness as a husband and a dad and God's grace on their home. Now God has these four daughters, these four unmarried daughters of Philip that now prophesy uh, in the church. But, um, wow, what does that look like? What's being said here? Much has been said about this. That they've, uh, This verse has been turned to for a lot of excuse to um, practice a lot of unscriptural nonsense in our day. So let's just see what's going on here. Well, certainly they prophesy, right? When we look back to Acts, uh, the beginning of Acts, um, when Peter spoke, he pointed back to a prophecy of Joel. Do you know what it said? Your sons and daughters will prophesy. So let me give you the pattern in the Old Testament. What we see, these ladies, we're we're in transition time, right? We're in that transition from uh, the apostolic age into what we know then, the coming of a full canon of Scripture being written by the apostles of Christ, the apostles of Christ dying off, there being uh, no one to fill that office, that office is done away with, and Scripture becomes our final standard, Scripture being penned by the apostles of Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. And so we have an age here, an apostolic age, where there is a transition period, where there are apostles of Christ and there are prophets who receive divine revelation, much like prophets in the Old Testament receive divine revelation. So the same Uh, Reality is taking place here in this transition period. And here we find four young women who have this spiritual gift. And so here's the pattern. The Old Testament pattern, or excuse me, the Old Testament prophesied of the coming of Christ, correct? Prophecy was directed at that reality. The prophecy that was given in the Old Testament. Some of it have practical applications, but all of it in its totality was pointing to this monumental reality in God's creation and God's working out his creation in space and time. This linear reality, there was coming a point in history that all prophecy was pointing to, and that was the coming of Christ. So The Old Testament gives us that pattern, and now Christ is on the scene. And the beauty and majesty was given in Old Testament prophecy fulfilled. And now we see the same pattern uh, coming around again. Now Christ is here. And there is a season where that beauty and majesty of divine revelation and prophecy will be worked out in the church age. Acknowledging the power and majesty of the coming of Messiah. He has come. And now that very Messiah's coming will ultimately be the means and the purpose and the end of of putting away that uh, prophetic word in the New Testament age. So that Christ has come declares definitively that now all power and majesty and finality is here. All that had been prophesied about the point, the apex of all prophecy is now on the scene. And there's a season in this transition period where that is magnified and glorified and beautified by this actual giving of divine revelation in that period of time. But it comes to a close because of that very fact. Christ has come and all perfection is finalized in him. And prophecy ends and the fulfillment of the canon or the finalization of the canon has come and, and, and the working out of of, uh, of, the, of the apostles of Christ. And as scripture is set, scripture is sealed. That is the final word of the church. And we await his final return. So there's the pattern. And these ladies fall into that pattern and in that intermental period there as Christ has come. The New Testament church uh, is, is now uh, now has life and movement and space and time. It's now after Christ has arrived. And so again in time Christ will bring prophecy to an end and certainly we're, we see that looking back that has taken place and that demonstrates the perfection of his presence. But these women were set aside for a time as prophets. They were set aside by God, and they were gifted with the gift of prophecy. Now, that's direct revelation. So what does, that, what does that not mean? When we say they were given the gift of prophecy, that being direct revelation, what were they not given? What is the other kind of prophecy? Preaching. Preaching is declaring teaching, preaching, the declared truth of God. So that's not what we see them doing. Right? God has given us his creative order. The Holy Spirit that is, that is uh, uh, moving these women to fulfill this role that God has given them and to have this gift is the same Holy Spirit that has set the order. So the Holy Spirit is not going to contradict himself. These women are not preaching. Now, it's under the direction of the Holy Spirit as to how they went about prophesying and how that was then uh, given out to the, to the larger body of, of Christ. That I don't know. We don't have the details there. But it's not within the church gathering and the church setting in a context of preaching. It's not that. Because then the Holy Spirit would contradict exactly what he has said in order. So they are not preaching. They are prophesying. They are declaring direct revelation. And they're doing so under the power and guidance of the Holy Spirit. How that's structured, we don't know. So I would be foolish to try to to, um, to say there. What we do know is that it's not prophesying in terms of preaching. They're not preaching. They're declaring divine revelation. And again, they're doing so in this uh, this little intermental period And they're doing so under the direction of the Holy Spirit, under his guidance and his governance. So he governs them. And they're being obedient followers of Christ. This is what they were called to do. And so they've set themselves as virgins. They're unmarried women. And they set themselves apart. And they've been set apart by the Holy Spirit, given to God for this purpose and for the good of the church and the health of the church in that time. So that's what's going on there. So they did not overthrow the order that had been established These daughters exercise the gift of prophecy in this transitional period. Now, I'll just give you this for a note. We won't linger here. But you look at 1 Corinthians 14. And there you see women in disobedience where they're trying to take on the role of preaching. And there it's condemned. Where they're trying to overthrow God's established order. So you're looking at a totally different picture in Scripture there. That is condemned. Here, is absolutely set by the Holy Spirit. And these women are practicing and exercising their gift as the Holy Spirit has given them capacity to do so uh, according to the will of a holy God. So this is perfectly uh, exactly within the will of God, within the, the climate and context of where they've been called to do so. And again, Christ will put this away in time fully. So that's what's going on there. I hope that was much to do about that. For, I hope I didn't spend, linger there too long. But again, it's just a little unique spot here. It speaks a lot to the, to the power and majesty of God's work in Philip's life as a husband and a dad. So these are, a, these are women to be celebrated. These are women that are obedient to God. These are women that are prophesying in the church when they're supposed to, the way they're supposed to, and a time that God had set aside. That time is past. So not preaching, they're fulfilling the role of a prophetess. And they're doing so in obedience. And we give glory to God for that. But that brings us now to verse 10 where we see Agabus, who is also a uh, New Testament prophet in the, the, uh, the apostolic age. We've met him before in chapter 11, but now he shows up on the scene again. And here in verse 10, um, they were staying there some days, that being still with Philip and, and his family. And Agabus shows up. He comes down from Judea. So he's a New Testament prophet. And again, he's uh, most poignantly here that where they have interaction with him prior. to so verse 11 where he foretold the famine. Okay. So when we see all that's interworking here, let me just bring you to, to Ephesians. where We're reminded of this. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 11. It says there God gave some as apostles and some as prophets. Now we're looking at uh, now the New Testament church in space and time working out. And this is the language that speaks to that. So there were apostles and there were prophets, and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers. So this is a time of transition. Ultimately, Pastors and evangelists will take over that role that we see given first as apostles and prophets. So apostles and prophets were the pillars of the church, right? It's the foundation of the church. That's apostles of Christ. Now, they die off. They pass away. No one else fills that office. The prophets, the New Testament prophets pass away with them. They were in conjunction with the apostles, some apostles, some prophets, apostles of Christ, pillars of the church. They passed away. What follows that? Evangelists and pastors, teachers. So evangelists in this context being those pioneer missionaries like Paul. Now, again, Paul's unique. He's apostle of Christ. He dies off with the other apostles of Christ. That era passes by but the role he has taken on in carrying the gospel to the gentiles that role of evangelist that still fits within the church we would think of that as pioneer evangelists out into where the gospel is not reached in other parts of the world where they have no gospel where there's no written word and then pastors and teachers that's your elders your overseers your bishops your primary teachers in the church. So that's what we see now. And that's what happens in the transition, moving from apostles and prophets to evangelists, <laughs> elders, preachers. Okay? That's just background there. So that's just, a, there's a lot that we need to fill in the gaps here as we look at just what's being stated. So there's your background. That's what's going on. We're in that transition period here. And so, there's practical revelation that's given by these prophets oftentimes, and Agabus does that. But the family was very practical. And what he's going to speak to Paul here is practical. And so it's practical revelation that reveals practical matters within the church. And so that's what Agabus comes here to do. And in verse 11, he gets a very vivid illustration using himself, speaking to what's going to happen to Paul in space and time soon. And again, this is divine revelation from God. He is a prophet of God. What he's telling here is truth. Everybody in this context knows that it's truth. They accept him as a prophet of God. And listen to the language here in verse 11. So as he comes to them, uh, it said he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, this is what the Holy Spirit says. And we're to understand that's exactly true there. He's not a false prophet. This is what the Holy Spirit says. In this way, the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. Now, let me say up front, that's exactly what did happen. Now, there was a little discretion here. If we look at it, when Paul gets to Jerusalem, we see that the Jews did take him, but Rome actually intervenes. They kind of step in to try to keep some peace there so that there's not an uproar within the Jewish community. Again, Paul does not have, a, there's a lot of folks in Jerusalem that have doubts about Paul. Remember, there's Christians there that have doubts about Paul because they're concerned about how Paul's dabbling with the law, right? So there's still a lot of hesitancy. hesitancy and even among the tr- Christian community, there in Jerusalem concerning Paul. Has this guy gone too far? Is he doing away with the law? They're still tied to the law, to some degree. Now, they are free in Christ. They're genuine Christians. But there's, a, there's some growth that has to happen in Jerusalem. There's, there's some work that has to be done untangling themselves to what they are so attached to in the law. Now, can you relate to that in any context in your life concerning the gospel? Tradition dies hard, doesn't it? Be careful. Don't be too judgmental of our a long ago brethren back there in Jerusalem. But they have some serious doubts about Paul. So pauls he's got definite enemies with the Jewish leadership. And he's got people in the, the, the Jewish church there that also are really, really suspicious of him. Okay, so that, that, that's his context. And Agabus knows this is what's going on. And ultimately, everyone present here is going to know this is what's going to transpire. So the Jews do take him in and Rome does intervene to try to stop the chaos for a moment. So they 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 do seize Paul in that process. So technically, the Jewish community didn't turn Paul over to the Romans. The Romans intervened and took him. But ultimately, the Jewish contingency was the means that brought Paul into the hands of the Romans. So there's a little technicality there, but you see the prophecy fulfilled. He ends up in Roman hands, and then we see his his, his fate from there. And certainly the prophecy comes true. He was persecuted. And also there's nothing said here about his death. There's just a promise of his persecution, and we see that prophecy fulfilled. So Agabus gives this Direct revelation from God, and it's a very vivid picture. So everybody knows what's happening There's no uh, gray areas. It's just we don't hear the prophet say, you're going to die. Just that you're going to be persecuted. Now, Paul recognizes that this persecution could mean death because he speaks to that later. He says, I'm ready to die for the cause of the gospel. But that's not what's prophesied here. What's prophesied all comes true and a little more. But everyone in this context knows Paul's going to suffer. He's going to be persecuted. And they understand it's not going to be lied. There's a soberness here of this in this prophecy. There's, there's a, a clarity, a sobering of this language that comes here by way of Agabus' prophecy. And so God uses Agabus to declare to all present there what's going to happen. Now, who besides Agabus, who knew this already? I don't. We don't know when Agabus was given this divine revelation from the Holy Spirit. But who knew this reality? Who knew Paul was going to be persecuted? And this crowd right here, who knew Paul was going to be persecuted already? Who already knew that? Come on. Ananias. Well, a little more obvious than this, Paul. Yes, Paul is who I'm after, though. Okay? Paul himself. Paul knew, didn't he? He'd been hearing about this already. Paul's well aware this reality. So who is this prophecy for, really? Who's it for? Well, ultimately, it's for us. We know that. But who's it for here in context? Paul so much? Not Paul so much. It's the rest of them. The prophecy comes not so much for Paul. Paul knows. It's for the rest of them. Because now they're gonna, what they're going to see, they get to hear about this from a, from a prophet that they all know is a genuine prophet of God. Paul's well of this. He's already set his face towards wisdom. He will not be deterred. That's kind of you know, uh, the, 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 the core of what we're holding on to here and looking at Paul's life through this journey. We see a relentless apostle. Why the prophecy here? Because everybody else, is going to see Paul, hear this prophecy declared to him again, and what's he going to do? What's he going to do with it? He's going to continue to set his face towards what God has called him to do in spite of the danger, and he's going to march on in obedience. And now what happens, church, brothers and sisters? Everybody there gets to see the faithfulness of God's man. What does that do for the rest of them? That's encouraging, isn't it? They get to see a prophecy from God given right to the man. Again, you're going to be persecuted. And what's their instinct here? Look, follow with me. What's their instinct here? So they, they hear this. And they're going to be, he's going to be delivered over to the Gentiles. The Jews are going to deliver him over. In verse 12, when we heard this, we as well as the local residents began begging him not to go up to Jerusalem. So they hear this, and what's their instinct? Don't go, go, Paul. You might, that's going to persecute you. You might die. We might lose you. Now, you can see the goodness of this and kind of, again, their impulse, because how valuable was Paul to the church just from their perspective? Again, you know, they don't know him fully, but they know of his ministry. They know the scope of it. They know who he is. This is the point, man, who God used to bring the gospel into the Gentile world, into folks like us. Now, there's Hellenistic Jews here certainly in Philip will be one, um, Agabus, and we're going to meet uh, uh, one later. And Mason is, is going to be a, most likely a Hellenistic Jew. But they're Gentiles. This is the Gentile world. Oh, man, how valuable is Paul to the church? Paul, don't go. We need you. The church needs you. You're, you're, you're beneficial to the church. You're, you're good for the church. Don't do this. Can you see that? Could you see the impulse there? Don't do this. This is crazy. You don't need to. Right? But what are they going to see? They're going to see a disciple of Jesus Christ who has his face set sternly on his calling his ministry calling that God has placed upon his life. God has called him to this mission, this ministry. God has given it to him, and he will see it through. No matter the circumstances, no matter the danger, he will see it through to its consummate end. So they're going to see a brother in Christ that in face of difficult circumstances, in face of absolutely divine prophecy, to, to tell him clearly, you are going to be persecuted. Where weaker men would flinch. He, he goes, walks straight into the fire and says, this is God's will for me. And there's the crux of it, right? It's better to walk into danger to walk headlong into the fire in the will of God than to stay somewhere safe and be outside of the will of God. If you don't get anything else, get that this morning. It's better. And Paul lives that out for them, and they all get to see it. And now who else gets to see it? Word of Grace Baptist Church, see it. Don't miss this simple reality as this is playing out before our eyes here in Scripture. This prophecy was for the rest of them. Nothing new for Paul. He already knew this. And now they're going to say to him, don't go. Well-meaning, genuine, loving brothers and sisters. Somebody, amen, somebody? Amen. You got a call on your life? You got a a friend, family call on your life? And there seems to be danger? Now, there's one thing to be reckless. We need to be wise and diligent in prayer. But if God has called us to something that is dangerous, don't be dissuaded. Don't be dissuaded. Be impervious to any deterrence of God's calling on your life, no matter the consequences. And here they get to see it. Paul never flinched. I mean, you know, he said, "Look, I love y'all. I love you. I would love to spend more time here. I would love to go to to get to, to meet together for, for Wednesday nights on in and to pray together." I would love to be here with you moment by moment to live out our faith together. God has called me somewhere else. It's dangerous. Matter of fact, I'm going to be persecuted. I could die. Here's what you need to understand. I'm ready. I'm ready to die. I'm ready to die for the cause of Christ. God has called me. I must obey God. And the emotions of this moment and the concerns for what could be, might be, has no effect on my calling. And they get to see it. And we get to see it. So here's the reality. To some degree, we all have to fight the gospel fight. Now we talked about... um, defending the faith and fighting and violence and and, uh, many things in our morning study. Um, And there's a a place for all those conversations. But when I say we have to fight the gospel fight, I mean this. Nothing is promised to us in terms of safety. Can I put it like that? Our, our, Our ministry may take different forms. Some may be far more dangerous than others. But what we have to settle our souls into and just, just dig our he- heels into theologically is this reality. We must, by the power of God, be prepared in our Christian wall to fight for the gospel. Do you understand? We must. No generation in any part of the earth has anything has had any less calling upon them concerning the gospel. You have to settle that in your soul. We have to be prepared to, prepared to fight for the gospel. And that's what they're seeing here. A brother living that out. This brother is prepared to fight for the gospel. And it's good for their souls. And if needs be, prepared to die for the gospel. The gospel's worth dying for. Amen? That's the way it goes. That's what it is. It's nothing less than that. There's much more that can be said about the glory of the gospel, but nothing less than that. You have to fight for it. Scripture gives us nothing else. Now, again, our context may take various forms of how the gospel ministry works out in our lives. But I mean, principally, you have to fight for it. You're carrying uh, an offensive message into a fallen world. And some places are very hostile toward you. You have to fight to carry it. And in that fight, you have to be prepared to die. And what we get to see here is a witness of that reality, who a man who is set by, by God on his course and obedient to God's calling and ready and prepared by the power of God working within him to fight for the gospel and if needs be, die. And a prophet was sent down into this context for everybody around there to see that and to get it and to lay hold of that beauty that they see lived out in the person and Christi- life of Paul the Christian. It wasn't for Paul, it's for them, it's for us. So pray and beg God the strength to be impervious to all that would hinder you from God's call on your life. Now there's a prayer for you. Certainly, again, he was, he was taken in by the Jews, and ultimately he fell into Roman hands. Again, uh, we see them kind of intervene to try to, to stop trouble, but ultimately ends up in Roman hands, and ultimately we know what finally does end up. Uh, it ends up Paul losing his life. But look at verse 13 there. So here's Paul's response to them. And Paul answered, them, and this is when they're begging, Don't go. Don't go, Paul. He says, What are you doing? Weeping and what? And breaking my heart. So you see his tenderness towards them, right? And, and that term uh, that, that here, here translates breaking. It's literally a picture of uh, women taking clothing, and as they're washing in a, in a creek bed, they'll, they'll wash the clothes and then they'll, they'll wrap them over the over nearby rocks. They'll beat them over the rocks to cleanse them, you know, to give them the, – that's the deep cleaning there. That, that's the deep spin cycle right there in the old days. So, they, they, so I don't know. Some, some of you uh, – surely some of you, if you're not near, anybody as much in here as old as me, but uh, some of you sure had grandma or great-grandma or somebody that had that washboard, right? i like, come on, this is the deep sap. I know somebody had, had, had folks that had the washboard. And they would scrub that thing on the washboard, man. They would take that, and, you know, grandma would dip that thing in the bucket, you know, and start looking it <laughs> on that rub board, on, that, on that washboard, right? Some of you look at me with blank stare. Sorry. <laughs> I'm sure i my age. But that's the picture, scrubbing. This is why way you, you, you're breaking across my heart, man. You're scrubbing my heart. Why? So he's tender to them. He cares about him. He knows their emotions. He knows their feelings for him. He knows their concern for him. And he says, him, why, are you, why are you just raking my heart? Why are you doing this? Look, here's what you need to know. I'm ready not only to be bound, which we know is true, but then he goes a little farther, but even to die at Jerusalem. Why? Here's why. For the name of the Lord Jesus. And that's where we must take our stand. Why? Look, I want to be with you. You're killing me, right? You know, you're killing me, Smalls. Why are you breaking my heart? I would love to be with you. This is what God has called me to do. And I will see it through by the strength of God, even if it costs my life. And that's what needs to be a testimony for every person in this room. That's how we need to live together. That's how we need to love one another. That's how we need to worship our Lord and Savior together. And that's not going to well up in us. Oh, there's some men with more courage than others. There's some women with more courage than 10 men. That's not the point. God must give us this kind of courage to live and die abandoned to Christ. And that's where we pray together. And that's where we anguish together. And that's where we ask God to move us together to be like Paul impervious to all that would call us away from God's call on our life. So he's willing to lay down his life for the testimony of truth. The gospel goes forth, y'all. The gospel goes forth, and the gospel's worth dying for. So here's the application for you. One, we too should be subject to the will and pleasure of God. That's what Paul is telling them here. you got this prophecy so you can see and remind yourselves vividly by my determination that all of us must be subject to the will and pleasure of God. God has called him to a dangerous place. I mean, it's not wise to wander into dangerous situations on your own. We can just call that not wise. But if God has called you to a dangerous place, what's different? That's right. You're in the hands of a sovereign God. He's called you safer in the hands of a sovereign God in a dangerous place than out of His God and out of His will in a safe place. And by the way, parents, same is true for your children. We beg God to save our children. We beg God to do a work in their lives that they can't do for themselves and we can't do for them. We beg God to save them. So don't beg God to save your children and then God mercifully reach into their lives and ransom them from spiritual death into spiritual life, and then you say, "Nope." He's mine, she's mine. You can't call her there. You lay them before God. You thank God for saving them and you give them up. Wherever God might call. Them, you give them up. That they too may have their lives subject to the will and pleasure of God. Look, you are safe in God's hands and his call on your life, and your saved children are safe in God's hands and his call on their life. Dad, um. He's sovereign. He's sovereign. He will see his people through. Look, you think God's aware of the danger in Jerusalem for Paul? Yes. He's called him into that danger. That's the point. God will call us into dangerous places. Some of us, God will call into dangerous places. What we have to understand is He is sovereign and He has called us there. And He understands all the danger. And He has your ministry worked out in that context in full. Your job is to be obedient to the call. And part of being obedient is laying hold of the fact that He is sovereign over your call. Trust Him. Trust Him. Also along that line, don't be softened up from dangerous ministry by all the brothers and sisters with every good intention that said, don't go, don't go. Don't go, it's dangerous. Don't send your children. It's dangerous. You'll never see your grandkids. Don't be softened up. Be obedient to God's call in your life. Forsake all for the ministry God has called you to. Forsake all. See Paul, be encouraged by Paul, remember Paul, forsake all for the ministry God has called you to. Whatever that may be, don't be softened into deterrence of what God has called you to. Forsake it all. Give it all up. Uh, Don't say it's too costly. Never say it's too costly. Forsake all for what God has called you to. It's safer in his will. God help me. I speak the truth to you. It's safer in his will. So look at verse 14 there. So here's how they resolve at the end. And since he would not, have I mean, Paul, since he would not be persuaded, we fell silent remarking, the will of the Lord be done. Now, I, I can't be definitive here, but I believe they're, they're in full accord understanding that, hey, this is God's will for Paul. Otherwise, they would have kept persisting. If they had doubt, they would say, look, Paul, you really got to this. Let's sit down. Let's have a little conference. Let's get together. Let's talk this through a little more. But they see the evidence of God's call on Paul's life and the spirit of God working there. Again, in the context of prophecy, clearly given, this man's walking into persecution. And Paul says, it's God's call for me. And so they beg him, no, it's God's call for me. And then we see here kind of a resolve between them all. And I believe that's evidence here in the language that they all realize, yes, this is the car. And so they just give way. Yes, God's will be done, right? And if it's done in a dangerous context, it's still God's will, and it will be done. So I see an accord here. Now, that's a little implication on my part, so be careful with that. Uh, take that as you will, but, but I, I see this as kind of a confirmation. Nonetheless, we see them theologically agreed: God's will be done. I believe they're in accord here. And then that kind of that finally just—I have one little last little emphasis. It's not even a point here; it's like a kind of a uh, an asterisk point to the to the main point. Look, don't flinch. But I also want you just to see in verses fifteen and sixteen. Just just be infectious. And here's what I mean by that: be infectious. In other words. Your walk, the way you live out your Christian calling, affects others. Live it out in obedience. Live it out in passion and see the effects of that on other brothers and sisters. Look there with me in verse 15. After these days, we got ready and we started on our way up to Jerusalem. And that's Paul and his cohorts. Again, they still have a little time because they're waiting to get there at Pentecost. So they're ahead of schedule. So they have some time to spend a few of these places, spend a few days. And so this is a beautiful time with Philip, his family, other brothers and sisters there. And so obviously, they got to be on their way because they do have a deadline at Pentecost. So after these days, they get ready and they start to leave in verse 16. And some of the disciples from Caesarea also came with us, taking us. The Mason of Cyprus, a disciple of long standing, with whom we would lodge. What just happened? Where's he at? Cy- disciples from Caesarea. Where is that? Philippi. Where are they? I know there's a lot. <laughs> that's a, lot a lot. of travel. They're in Caesarea. They're in Caesarea. How close. They're in Caesarea. That, that whole area, that long strip there. That's where they are. So who went with them? The brothers that were saying, don't go go is too dangerous. And they're like, man, this brother's with it. This brother's obedient. This brother's walking the walk. I'm going to. I'm going with them. Now, they're not headed to watch, you know, a gruesome scene in Paul's life. They're walking in the fire with him. They're caught up, and God's called on Paul's life. And next thing you know, they're begging, "Hey, look, this—you know—that this is a little dangerous, Paul. Maybe you should reconsider." And Paul sets his face in obedience. And the next thing you know, they're like, "All right, God's will be done. Move on. Go to Jerusalem, and we're coming with you. We're coming too." Be infectious, be faithful. Let your let your Christian walk be infectious to others. How does that happen? Be faithful. Be obedient. Trust the Lord and follow in obedience. Beg God to give you the capacity to hear from your Lord and to obey him. Hear from him in his word as it applies to your life and your context and obey it. And pray that your obedience will be infectious. On others. Pray that that would be true. This is a sweet, beautiful picture here. They're one minute saying, man, you can't go. That's dangerous. Next minute, they're on board. Why? Because Paul's charismatic? Well, he's not charismatic. He fumbles through his words. He's, he's an unimpressive guy physically. He's not a good speaker. He mumbles and bumbles around. Well, what is he? He's God's man with a face set like flint. On where called to. Man, it's that. It's that. We're all so worried about the externals in this culture. And that is seeped into the Christian climate. We're all so worried about the externals. The looks. The appearance. The right words. The right deep, booming voice. The right look. God's called us to obedience. You want the right actions. From a man humbled before God. That's what they saw. That's what they saw. And they followed him. They followed him into the fire. So be infectious. So Paul was infectious and he drew there. Affections even closer to the worth and majesty of God. And that's what it does. When we see men who are infectious, who are, are, are consumed with obedience to God, it draws us. And we too, our affections are drawn to the worth and majesty of God. So they're a great encouragement to each other, right? Now you got a band. Now you got some unity. Now you got brothers that are, that are there with you. How encouraging is that? Now they're going into the fire with him. How encouraging. Romans 8, 28. And we know that God causes all things to work together for the good of those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. He's working out all our ministry calling for his glory and our good. And how sweet it is when there's fellowship and and a, a tour de force, where there's brothers and sisters who are bonding in this reality and moving forward together, infectious in one another's lives. Man, now, now they, got, they got a band of brothers going now. Paul's going to see it through. But now what encouragement he has there, right? You ever get to that point and you're set and you're ready, but then, the, the, then you know, the heat comes and there you are and you're ready to back down? It's very encouraging when you have other brothers and sisters around. Very encouraging. And This is how, this is how gracious God is. So these guys just move right along with them. And then I'll leave you with this. So they go to Mason's uh, um, place, and we hear a little bit about this guy. And just, again, a little bit of encouragement here. So he's in Cyprus, and he's a disciple of long standing, and they're going to lodge with him. This guy's probably a Hellenistic Jew. And disciple of longstanding here, from everything that we can know and take from this, that language Is pointing back to one who became a follower of Christ in his earthly ministry. So that's what we're looking at. A guy that was close to Jerusalem. A guy that would have seen Christ. A guy that would have come to know Christ through his words, through his ministry, his declaration of who he is. So here you have this kind of old guard, where there's not a whole lot of them left at this point. So you got this old guard, if you will, original follower of Christ. And now the new generation. And now not just the new generation, but this apostle. This point man for God into the Gentile world. And so you kind of have this changing of the guard, this beautiful picture. And here is, the guy's just, this is his name just mentioned in scripture. So now we have him forever. For all generations everywhere, we just have this guy. Now we know, all we know about him is he's a disciple. He's just mentioned here. He catches Paul, which we know much about. And we know where Paul's going. And he catches this guy and we see hospitality. We see Christian hospitality from this guy that's just mentioned. And all that's given about him is that he is a disciple. And much like Philip, his ministry, his Christian life has been lived out in obscurity. We know less about him than we knew about Philip. So as an obscure guy, just kind of just he's just touched by Paul's very obvious, overt ministry. And this guy has Christian hospitality and he takes the band in. And they stay with him there. And he's known as a disciple. Now, this is a small service matter. This is a little thing. He's just giving them lunch. It is a little thing. One guy. He's mentioned forever in Scripture. Isn't that cool? Forevermore, everywhere on the planet where God's word exists, this guy shows up. And he shows up as the guy that's known as a disciple who's hospitable. That's all we see about it. I just want you to make note of this as we see Paul going on a dead set, arrow straight journey of obedience towards God. There's a Christian brother along the way. And it's a change of the God. I think it's a beautiful picture because it's kind of a generational change. Here he is. Small little service effort here. He supports Paul. And he may have gone and he may have been a great help into that Jewish community. We don't know this. He may have been a great help there because he could be an intermediary. Right there, you know, because, because there's some hostility towards it. He, uh, he, he could have gone on with him. He certainly would have been a great help, I would imagine. This is an original uh, uh, believer from the ministry of Christ. So they have some clout there. They have, they have the life lived out. But it's a relationship from one generation to the next of believers, and that's a beautiful picture that we just touch here with this verse. The old accepts the new and the encouragement of unity, unity between old and new. The old welcomes the new ways, right? So here's this guy that was pointing man to the Gentiles. And we just see a follower of Christ from the life of Jesus now touches life. And they're in unison. He gives them lodging. Most of all, I want to leave you with this. What you're looking at here, this guy, is just an ordinary disciple. And that's what we want to be known as. Man, man. If we could be just an ordinary disciple where we know what God has called us to is obedience and everything about his calling upon our life matters. What he's given us to do, whether it's seen and noticed or whether it's unseen and small, a small matter, it matters. And all to be known as a disciple, an ordinary disciple The only thing that we find here is his name and a little context about where he's from. So when we look at Paul and we look at this this obedience and this infectious uh, 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 reality that has upon one another and being undaunted in our calling, also, let's bring it down to reality, that we would be known as disciples, God's disciples. This is why we do what we do. Whatever God calls us to, we do what we do because we're disciples of Christ. That's our motivation. Oh, that we would be disciples. Let's pray together. Gracious Father, we thank you for these few verses. Um, we pray that you would take these truths here, that that are nestled nestled into this language, and that you would it, it, you would just. Overwhelm our hearts with your worth, with your calling upon our lives, with the the hope and majesty and worth that exists with just being a disciple of Christ. What a glorious God. What a gracious God that we could be called disciples of Christ. Whatever our ministry context, big or small, it all speaks to your glory. And oh, that we could be called disciples, faithful men and women that will not be deterred and that live lives that are infectious on one another because we long to see your name exalted among us. Give us strength to abandon ourselves to Christ, no matter the cost. Give us wisdom to walk in righteousness and love one another and live in obedience to you. We ask it in the name of Christ. Amen.